there are often cliches that are attached to our faith. And one of the cliches that's probably gone around for the last 20 years is that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship with Jesus. Is that right? Is Christianity not a religion, but primarily a relationship? The dichotomy of this statement is the idea that a religious-based approach that is an intellectual concern for the Word of God is devoid of interaction with the resurrected Jesus. Of course, that is untrue, although it can happen. We see it when uh, Christians become too legalistic or they become so enthralled with their own intellectual um, gymnastics. But the truth is, our intellectual concern with the Word of God and a relationship with Jesus not only can and do go together, but it is essential that they go together. As we continue our study through Acts 19, we're going to see that Christianity is not an either-or proposition, but a both-and. As Paul and his associates taught the Word of God and relied upon the resurrected Jesus. This led to amazing transformation at Ephesus and throughout Asia Minor. Now one of the things that's unique about Acts chapter 19 is that there is a reference to Christians as followers of the way. The first time that we read that from Dr. Luke in his account of Acts is chapter 9, when Paul is persecuting the Christians, the followers of the way. This is the second accounting, and we will see three more in subsequent chapters later. Scholars tell us that this is likely a reference to what Jesus actually said about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way reminds me that the focus of my faith is not solely on theology or solely on intellectual content of the Word that would be devoid of Jesus because Jesus is the point. That theology is based upon Him at the center of it. Jesus said to His critics, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to Me. And He said that He's the promised fulfillment of the Word of God. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're going to see in Acts 19 as we go through this chapter, the power of God that is released and manifested as the early church emphasized the connection between the Word of God and the resurrected Lord Jesus. The big idea today is this, that the connection between the Word of God and the resurrected Jesus empowers our witness. Sometimes we may wonder, 
why our witness is not very effective or why it's not very powerful. And I think this is something that we could probably look at in ourselves. How much are we relying upon the Word of God? Or how much are we relying upon the resurrected Jesus? Are we connecting the two in our witness, in how we're living our life, in how we're talking about our life, in how we're sharing our life with others so that they can see the power of God? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 19 in in your... Bibles, if you haven't already, and as you do, I want to talk a little bit about the background of Ephesus. Chapter 19 is the account of Paul's ministry at Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. It had over 200,000 inhabitants. It was a political, commercial, and religious center of Asia Minor. And there it was the center of the Greek fertility goddess Artemis, who is often associated with the Roman goddess Diana. There was a robust industry around the worship of Artemis in Ephesus, as there was in any of the ancient cities that had temple worship. Paul was there for two years. That was his longest stay. Now in Acts 19, there are four encounters where the power of God brought transformation. As the word of the Lord was proclaimed in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. So we're going to look at those four encounters. The first encounter was with the Jews at Ephesus. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. Paul meets some disciples. He is looking for disciples when he comes to Ephesus so that he could partner with them. And of course, those disciples would be among the Jews. And he finds disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What was it that John taught about the one who was to come after him? Well, the Gospel of Matthew records that John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was referring to the prophecies of the coming Messiah from the prophets Isaiah and Malachi when he saw it 
when he taught these things to his disciples, the word of God was at the basis of his pointing to another who was to come after him greater than him. So Paul tells them about Jesus. It is likely that he may have even proof-texted, providing some evidence for them from the Old Testament, messianic prophecies that help them to grasp that this Jesus is the one that John was pointing to. They believed and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit filled them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. I want to talk for a moment about the laying out of hands and the gift of the Holy Spirit in speaking in tongues. There is within the spectrum of Christian belief. There are those who hold that there are two baptisms, not one. And they suggest that there is a baptism with water and there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they suggest that you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues because it is a sign of the presence of the Spirit. Years ago in my ministry, there was a couple that came to saving faith and they came to believe that Jesus is the Savior and they were baptized. They ended up moving their business down to St. Louis. And a few years after they left, I had some business down there. So I went down there and um, I visited with them and we had just a wonderful time visiting together. And they ended up becoming a part of a church that believed in these two baptisms. And they were concerned for me and they expressed their concern for me. And they wanted to pray over me and lay hands on me because they wanted me to receive the Holy Spirit. And I told them I had received the Holy Spirit. That wasn't necessary. But I said, if God's speaking through them to me, then... I am willing to allow you to lay hands on me, pray, and I certainly want the Lord to fill me with his presence. So they laid hands on me and they prayed over me for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it was awesome. I loved it. I loved that they loved me and that they cared enough to want me to have the Holy Spirit. I never spoke in tongues. That didn't change for me. Because I had already received the Holy Spirit. But I didn't have the gift of tongues. Now, I'm not trying to disparage those who do have the gift of tongues. I do believe that it is a gift. And I know that there are some of you throughout our congregation who do speak in tongues. And you, you do it privately. You follow biblical guidelines with it all and I think that's awesome but when Paul writes to the Corinthians about the gifts of the Holy Spirit he raises this question to the Corinthians who have all of these incredible gifts 
an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says, do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The assumption in these questions is no, not all do. So I wanted to talk about this today, not to disparage our brothers and sisters who do believe that, because there obviously is some biblical foundation for them to be able to say that here in this account. But as evangelicals, those of us who are, we follow a different pattern. We don't believe that this is the only an established pattern to receiving the Holy Spirit. We follow the pattern set forth in Acts 10, verses 43 through 48. And this is the sequence of what happened when Peter came to the first Gentile, Cornelius, and his family and friends. And what happened was, first they heard the word of God. Then they believed on Jesus. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know how to rectify the difference of our theology with their theology. And I'm not willing to say just because they don't have the same theology as I do, they're not believers. Because again, there's some biblical precedent for it. I'm going to let God sort that out. But we as a church will follow that Acts 10 model. That's what we, this church has followed long before I came and will continue to follow while I'm here. And I imagine we'll follow long after I'm gone because we are evangelicals. But God can choose how he wants to pour out his spirit in our lives. Can he not? He is the Lord. All right. Paul, after this, now takes these 12 disciples and he goes to the synagogue, which is his pattern, right? First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And he goes to them and it says that he is um, teaching boldly and persuasively. What does that mean? It means that he's using all the Old Testament messianic prophecies and he's pointing to Jesus. The word of God He's just teaching it to them so they could see Jesus has fulfilled these things. And this is what happened, right? They rejected Jesus. There was a different result. And so they spoke evil of the way, it says. Evil of those who believed Jesus was the Messiah. And they maligned and they disparaged it. And what Paul did was he just withdrew from them. And that leads us to the second encounter. Let's read about that now in Acts 9 and 10. It says then that Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So now Paul takes the message of the gospel and the word of God and his relationship with Jesus and he goes to the Gentiles in the marketplace or the educational 
forums of Greek life. And he begins to teach them. And this witness goes out to all in Asia Minor, which is a, an amazing thing. And Jews and Gentiles alike are moved by it. They heard about the resurrected Jesus through the word of God and the testimony of Paul. And so we read in Acts 19.20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And we read in Acts 19.26, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. From this point on, Paul will not follow that pattern of going first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He will simply go to the Gentiles. Does this mean that Paul has given up on his people? The answer is absolutely not. Paul, when he writes his letter to the church at Rome, says that he perceives God as a special plan. And through the jealousy of the Gentiles and the outpouring of God to them, he will save the Jews. So that is why Paul goes to the Gentiles now from here on. New pattern. Just spreads the gospel in that way. He wants, though, his people to come to faith. So for those who somehow think that the Jews are no longer the promised people and the Gentiles are, forget it. That hasn't changed. Okay? All right. This then leads to the third encounter. And instead of going now in the second encounter to the Gentiles, he's been to the Jews, now to the Gentiles. This third encounter that we read about is the encounter with powers of darkness. We read, as we read on in Acts 19.11 through 20, that extraordinary miracles are occurring. There are healings and there are exorcisms that are taking place. And it is having a profound effect. In verses 11 through 12 we read, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Many people were coming to saving faith. In fact, what we're going to read is it was so many that others began to imitate what Paul and his co-workers were doing. Read with me verses 13 through 15. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And then this man turns on these seven men. He overpowers them. He 
beats them, he strips them and leaves them naked and humiliates them and sends them out into the public. Really, can one man overpower seven men? Yes, evil can give somebody that much strength. A long time ago, I was probably about 34 at the time, I was asked if I would assist with an exorcism. Part of that exorcism and part of the reason I was asked to assist was not only because of my belief and my uh, personal prayer life and my faith in Jesus, but also to help make sure that I would restrain the person from hurting themselves. Because that can happen. That evil entity can often turn against the own person and get the person to hurt themselves. And in one incident, that began to happen. Now, I'm not a very formidable man anymore. But back when I was 34 years old, believe me, I was still a formidable guy. I had still been coaching youth in wrestling. I was still engaged in those kinds of things and very physical. And as I began to restrain this teenager, he's only a teenager, not even out of high school yet, I got picked up with one arm and thrown. That was very surprising to me. But that's the kind of strength that evil can provide. So there's no reason not to believe this account. Now, evil is very real. But I want you to know that the power of Jesus Christ is more powerful than evil. And I watched that evil spirit submit to the authority of Jesus the resurrected Jesus in the name of Jesus. And I saw what happened. This exorcism took place over a period of time, probably about three or four months. And this teen didn't remember those sessions when those things would happen. Remembered nothing about it until the end. And in the end, he began to be conscious that something was going on. And when he became conscious and aware of that, he was able to affirm his faith in Jesus. He was able to affirm the identity of himself as a child of God. And he was able, in the name of Jesus, to tell that spirit to leave. And it never came back. That's because it had no place in him, no longer welcome. And by the authority of Jesus, it was totally cast out. The account that Dr. Luke writes is that this was so powerful when everybody heard, is that where I am? Sorry. For those of you who want to know more about spiritual warfare, um, Neil Anderson does a great job of understanding that. These are two of the books that I would recommend for you. And they focus strongly on the Word of God and uh, how to engage these forces as we need to. Thanks.
This event just sent shockwaves through Ephesus. People were talking about it. And what happened was that people started to turn away from the occult. And they turned away from following darkness. So much so that they had a major event where they burned all the books and all the materials related to it. And one of the things that it says was that they burned something like 50,000, I don't know if it was drachmas or whatever it was, but let me tell you what that means in today's currency. $19.5 million. They just burned it. They repented of this evil. What I know of the occult and of people who pursue the occult is that often they are looking for success. And often they are looking for knowledge. They covet these things. And the darkness promises to give them whatever it is that they're pursuing. But here's the trickery in it. As they come to that darkness and as they follow that darkness, that darkness gets access to them and takes up residence within them. Now, I want you to know that some people who are plagued, obsessed, and oppressed by evil spirits, some of those people get this because they've invited it in, but not everyone invites it into their life. That teen that I told you about, that didn't come to him because he invited it in. It came because as a very young boy, he was molested and there was something attached to that that happened to him. Some people through no fault of their own find themselves dealing with these kinds of forces. As I told you, once he commanded it to come out in the name of Jesus, it had no place of residence within him at all. That's part of what I like about what Neil Anderson does. He focuses on our identity as a child of God. That should be our identity. Not that I'm an Italian-American. Not that I'm from Berwyn, right? But that I am a child of God. Redeemed and loved. And the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus is in me because he walks with me and has filled me with the Spirit. And that's what all of us should focus on primarily. That should be our identity now that we have become believers. Well, we read that after this major event took place in Acts 19.17, that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And then in verse 20, the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we see how the word of God and the resurrected Jesus do work together. They're intimately tied and connected. This, of course, in the account of Dr. Luke at Ephesus leads to the fourth encounter, and that's an encounter with the world's systems. And we read about that in verses 21 through 41. And what we see is that the worship of the false god or goddess Artemis is being disrupted. And I see 
the world religion essentially is part of the world system. There is another part of the world system. And that is the economy, the economic factors. Those were disrupted as well. There was a huge industry around worshiping the goddess. And it was beginning to be affected because not only the people of Ephesus, but throughout Asia Minor, they were coming to reject that and to believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it was affecting the livelihood of those who were making their money. If you don't think there are money made around religion, just go to Jerusalem. How many tour guides are there? How many opportunities are there to go and see these things? I mean, it's just a natural part wherever there's a center of worship, there's an industry that, that functions around it. And I don't want to say all of it is bad, but, you know, the truth is, in this case, it absolutely was. The transforming power of the Word of God and the resurrected Jesus was actually changing society. And that's part of the reason in our mission statement, when we talk about connecting with people at the world and discipling in them the Word, and then sending them out as empowered disciples to transform the world, we know that society actually is changed when we're living this out. It has the power to change what's happening in society itself. That is part of our witness, part of what God does, and part of the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of this world. Well, after this, a riot breaks out, and a man named Demetrius, who's dependent upon the trade based upon the worship of Artemis, He gathers all the workmen together and trades people together and he begins to really stir them up. And the people of the town become stirred up and they grab two of Paul's co-workers and they take them into the local amphitheater. Now, it doesn't say that the local amphitheater was filled, but they must have taken them there for a reason because they didn't have enough room in the streets. And that amphitheater could hold 25,000 people. So there must have been a large group of people there. And they were shouting and screaming for blood. Paul wanted to go, but those who were with Paul stopped him. And the Jews who were present there pushed Alexander forward to talk to the crowd. And when they realized that Alexander was a Jew, racism absolutely took over. And the crowd shouted him down. They didn't even listen to him. They weren't even going to reason with them. They just shouted them down for two hours. Doesn't that sound some like the political climate today? Well, this went on for two hours until a local official finally was able to restrain the crowd. And he restored order by reminding them of the Pax Romanus, the Roman peace. If they were to break the Roman peace, the Romans would send their soldiers into Ephesus and they would occupy that city. They didn't really want that, he said. So he reminded them that they did have the courts where they could adjudicate their, their um, concerns. 
and addressed them. And the people left. And that's the end of Acts 19. What we see in this chapter are four powerful encounters of how the power of God manifests itself in the lives and the witness of Paul and his co-workers as they relied upon the word of the Lord and the resurrected Jesus. I'm mindful that the church of Ephesus was one of the seven churches of Revelation. It's the first church to receive both a con- uh, of those seven churches. And it received both a commendation and an admonishment. It was commended for their works, toil, pursuit of truth, and discerning of false teachers. No doubt they were leaning into their adherence to the word of God. But they were admonished for abandoning their first love. One scholar called it a honeymoon love. That passionate and love that's alive. And while scholars have some disagreement about what that first love is, I think that it has something to do with their relationship with Jesus. I'm convinced of that. The intellectual concern with the Word of God and your relationship with Jesus must go together. There's a dynamic reality of connection between the two that releases the power of God so that it's more evident to the world. And I think as believers, if we will rest upon what God has given us, His Word, and His Son Jesus, who He says if we'll abide in Him, doesn't Jesus say that? That we'll produce fruit? If we'll do that, God will use our witness to bring hope and love to all the world. Let's pray. Almighty and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your truth is not a secret truth or a hidden truth, that it's not part of the occult, but that, Lord, It is a truth for all eternity, for all people, because you love and care for us. You are our creator. And we thank you, Lord, that the the point of your word is to bring us to faith and submission to your son, Jesus. To what it is that he came to do, to embody you. And to take upon himself your wrath on the cross to die for sin. And Lord, to make the slate clean through the forgiveness that comes through his blood for those who will believe on him. Not because of anything they do but by simple faith in him. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that when we come to this saving faith, 
because of what he's done and because he's ascended into heaven and is on the throne, that he and the Father sent the Spirit to take up residence with us, to fill us with your presence and to help us to live the kind of lives that your word teaches so that we can fulfill that relationship with you. We thank you that even here and now we live in an eternal relationship with you. And though, Lord, now it is imperfect, what we see in a mirror dimly, one day it will be perfect as we walk face to face with you. We will be in perfect submission. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Where does it say that Paul stopped preaching the gospel to Jews? And why did he do this? If, if I gave you the impression that he stopped preaching to the Jews, that was not my intention. I believe what I said was that he doesn't follow the pattern any longer of going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Paul would certainly have preached the gospel to the Jews who would have asked him questions about it. What he doesn't do is he doesn't go to the, the, the synagogue first any longer. That's the pattern that stops. The Jew first and then the Gentile. But Paul will always preach the word of God to everybody. So I hope that clarifies that piece. Thank you for the question. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace both now and on to life eternal. Amen.